Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. David Brown is professor of mathematics and statistics at Utah State University. A while back, he gave a talk in the Science Unwrapped series from the College of Science titled Artificial Intelligence, Too Late to Stop the Robot Apocalypse. Professor Brown says, perhaps ironically, salient technology superstars like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and publicly known geniuses like Stephen Hawking have spoken out and warned us about the advent of artificial intelligence. On the other hand, doing so won them the Luddite Award from CNET and alarmist labels from Wired and ENT magazines. What's the truth? Is the next is AI the next atomic bomb? Are AI research labs the next Los Alamos? If yes, are there nevertheless compelling reasons to pursue AI? And what distinguishes AI from generic computer science or programming or robotics? We're going to talk about it today on Access Utah. Glad you've joined us. Uh, Professor Brown, thanks for, uh, for being with us. You're welcome. So if we get to time uh, as we go along, I'd like to talk about a, a, your TED Talk here at uh, USU on mathematics. Um, and maybe just treat that briefly here. Uh, central thesis of that talk is that uh, we couldn't have set out if we wanted to to turn people off mathematics in K through 12 any better than we have. We we really turn people away. You say, well, you said that, and I think you said it better than I ever could. So thanks for doing my TED talk, and maybe like a, <laughs> that might have been a haiku. There so, you go. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> very good haiku form. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, and, and you're passionate about this, right? You 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 really. You really want people to appreciate mathematics, understand that mathematics isn't just rote memorization. and Pretty safe to say it's pretty my life, more or less. It's definitely my job, the better part of it. Um, uh, yeah, I, ha- I have a research program that, to me, that gets me the opportunity or gives me the opportunity to work here at Utah State that uh, allows me to have some free time to pursue creative endeavors like developing more mathematics material and um, teaching fewer classes so I can give more more bang to the students buck in those in those classes so yeah it's it's a big deal so um, I believe you said in your TED talk that you you spent some time regular jobs right climbing the corporate ladder I did um, yeah I climbed the corporate ladder and um, got very turned off by the inner workings of all that stuff. And uh, I quit my job at an oil company at, uh, at a time that probably couldn't have been worse. It was kind of mid-semester. Uh, I was going to school at the time, and um, I had realized that basically the corporate world takes advantage of everyone and everything at all times. And uh, I realized that I had been being taken advantage of uh, greatly, and so I wrote my resignation letter up and handed it to my boss, and I still remember the words that came out of his mouth as I set it on my desk, and they were something like, Dave, what's this? (laughs) And uh, with a smile and a slant in my eye, I went back to my desk and sat down and put my hands behind my head, you know, crossed them and put my feet up on my desk and thought, yep, that's right. (laughs) So, and uh, then I pursued um, uh, two degrees in math and philosophy, full blast, Um, sat in on about 32 credits worth of classes for, I think it was three-eighths of the semester that was left over, and um, kind of realized that I could complete two degrees in in a semester's time, so I did that and then, then went to grad school after that. Yeah. Not knowing what I was going to do. Right. <laughs> Follow your passion, right? That's I, the, yeah. Yep. 
Follow yep. your passion. So artificial intelligence, um, and you quote in this, you quote in your Science and Rap talk. By the way, you can Google that up, um, Science and Rap at USU, and uh, David Brown, you'll bring up the talk. Um, some pretty big hitters have expressed some pretty serious worries. You know, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh, maybe we could articulate some of those worries. Well, I I don't know that I can, to be honest, because I think uh, I think it might be just seeing too many sci-fi movies and maybe um, abstracting way too much on um, maybe oddly the mathematics of it. So if you think about, um, let's see. So I think Stephen Hawking brought up the idea and he might have been just thinking out loud. I, I can't imagine someone as smart as Stephen Hawking would have been truly concerned about this. But uh, uh, if artificial intelligence is possible and uh, uh, robots or computers can evolve, um, then they could do it as fast as they wanted to. They don't have to do it in our crude, really, really, you know, messy, you know, reproduction, okay, you live, you don't live because you have some mutation that didn't uh, stand up. So a computer could just think of things and do what it needed to do and rewrite its code and become perfect in a matter of seconds or less. So I think that was the idea that Stephen Hawking expressed. And it might have been more of a, a lesson in, I don't know, exponential growth or or perhaps it could have been a motivational speech. It could have been uh, his version of Tony Robbins saying, look, if you want to change something about yourself, just go do it. Because, you know, that's what we're afraid of in terms of artificial intelligence, because they could best us easily. They could decide, hey, you know, these uh, this uh, alcohol that I drink and uh, these uh, silly things that I do for uh, for fun are dangerous. So I just won't do them anymore. Anyway. Um, so I, so did. In your view, and you definitely come down on our side, right? You, you you say, let's not worry about this. But but the, the worries, you think, come from science fiction? The worries are aimed in the wrong place. And uh, I, I, I am possibly labeled as a Luddite by many. Uh, I have a flip phone. I, I will probably never get a smartphone. Um, I don't like the um, extent to which technology kind of runs my life. I don't like the extent to which I'm attracted to it. Uh, I don't like the extent to which I seek entertainment along the electronic lines. Um, so it kind of bothers me. But I'm certain that we will never have any robots that do things um, like we do in the way that we do. Like we have had a, a good robot that uh, played chess very well. And uh, around 2016, when I gave the science and rap talk, turned out to be very timely. Um, Google either, I, I don't know if they made the computer, they definitely made the software, but um, it beat the Go champion, which was something that uh, computer scientists or, you know, anyone that fielded guesses about things like that, thought wouldn't happen for dozens of years more because of the um, ostensible complexity of that game. But uh, we beat it. So we can make, um, we can make uh, computers that play chess, that play Go. Uh, we have robots that wash our clothes for us and wash our dishes for us. Um, but they don't wash dishes like we would wash dishes. And uh, they certainly don't wash clothes the way we wash clothes. So they're, they're, we're very good at tailoring our world to the technology that we've got 
to to make robots that don't look like Star Wars robots that can go anywhere and do anything. But we have quite a few, you know, single, double, triple purpose robots that that help us out quite a bit. But I'm not afraid of my washing machine taking over my house. Right. Um, dishwasher on the other hand, yeah, that one's a little kind of a little weird. I, I don't know what that one's going to do. Could it might turn into Hal? Right? It might turn into Hal. Yeah. So. Your presentation, you had Hal. I did have Hal. You'd had Hal there. Uh, that, this is part of our fears, right? Because Hal developed a consciousness, right? You know, um, Stanley Kubrick's film. Well, I think. So going back to where I sit on this, the side, uh, we certainly shouldn't be worried about robots taking over. What I think we should be worried about is what's already insidiously happening, and that is that so much of our, our life is dependent upon computers and the cloud. Um, and, uh, you know, so if, if, if computer hackers really wanted to do something, they could write viruses that, uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying this because it gives them an idea. I kind of feel like the computer hackers in the world are a bunch of underachievers that could be fixing the world whenever they wanted to because computers kind of have their fingers in just about everything. So, you know, uh, with a, the appropriate computer virus, maybe my credit card could be turned off and then I could essentially be starved to death, you know? So the, 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 the internet and the, the cloud system that kind of governs our life could could you know kind of take care of humans in the old medieval way we'll just we'll just be starved out we won't be able to buy food we won't be able to operate we won't be able to buy stuff and uh yeah so you know uh i go to the gas pump and suddenly i can't buy gas and i go to the store i can't buy groceries or yeah any number of things you Mm -hmm. know so oh i can't call anybody because my cell phone doesn't work because somebody hacked it so you know the the more and more we 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 use our technology to kind of improve our lives, obviously, the more we're kind of living symbiotically with it. So if if there is any kind of artificial intelligence, it's going to be something that is kind of like us paired with all the technology that we've got. And we'll essentially be we'll be doing whatever we do to ourselves, to ourselves. And that's a key, right? The the, the machine will always be a machine. In, well, in, in your view, it's, it's just people... Who controls the machine? Who gets who gets access to the machine? It, it, it's unfortunately not that simple. So, and, and perhaps the the reason why artificial intelligence is so interesting, um, but possibly not articulatable, um, is that in the beginning, and maybe the the I don't know, someone a little bit naive to to uh, to computers and and how they work. Um, thinks that a computer will do nothing other than what you tell it to do. And so if that's true, um, you need to investigate, or if you think that's true, you should investigate the, the tenets of machine learning, which is um, something very, very basic. Um, the ideas behind some machine learning algorithms are essentially like evolution. They're, they're genetic. Um, Martin Gardner uh, is, a, is a famous mathematician for um, famous for engineering puzzles that people delight in and doing a lot of recreational mathematics. And um, he and another uh, computer scientist whose name I can't remember right now um, invented a, a way for a, a pile of matchboxes to uh, learn and play tic-tac-toe. So, that, so tic-tac-toe is a game where if you play optimally, you win or tie and if you're the first player. So if you uh, design these tic-tac-toe boxes appropriately, you can, or sorry, match boxes, 
um, you injure the human and you play first and the matchboxes essentially play for you. Um, over time, the matchboxes will either, um, will always tie. You will, you will never beat the matchboxes. So, but you didn't program them to do anything. It's, it's a very kind of a conspicuous way of, of getting at uh, training uh, a machine, I guess. The, in this case, it would be a pile of matchboxes uh, to do something. So the, I think the question that, that, that I can maybe concisely state is, what is a program? So if computers can do only what they're programmed to do, that is, they can only execute the programs that they're given, um, what is a program and what is the what is the limitation of the abilities of a program and and there are very interesting mathematics um, that surround that but um, it's rare that people learn these mathematics kind of maybe this is not coincidental that I'm tying this back to mathematics teaching but uh, we tend to overlook some of the very earth-shaking philosophical developments in mathematics and of course we lean toward all of the stuff that we believe is useful in science, technology, and engineering. But um, uh, Kurt Gödel uh, proved a very amazing theorem that I think the world, um, depending on who you are, it either says all things or you don't understand it. But uh, uh, he proved something that has consequences in artificial intelligence. And what he proved is that there, in, in any mathematical system that's very, very, at least as basic to support arithmetic, there are statements that are true that you cannot prove and statements that are false that you cannot prove to be false. And um, saying true and false is kind of a – true and false are technical terms in mathematics. And um, so uh, – but, but the, the, the weight of them is, 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 is lighter everywhere else than in mathematics. So a statement being true is, is basically like saying you could – deduce it from a set of givens. So um, maybe thinking in the computer science vein, it's like you you can write a program to get to this truth. Okay, but if there are statements that are true that you cannot get to, so the metaphor to me is that there are things that a machine can do that you never told it what to do. So perhaps then the AI alarmist might be right. And I think that that's where they're kind of putting all their, their, their bets is that a machine will one day do something that essentially looks like I'm conscious and I don't want humans around anymore, which is a pretty massive leap when you think about it. I mean, why, why don't we fantasize about computers wake up and go, oh, these poor humans, they're so soft and, and squishy and, and delicate. Let's help them out. Uh, it could go that way. Yes. <laughs> you have a, um, before we go to break, I want you to talk about, um, how Deep Blue learned to beat uh, Garry Kasparov. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it was Deep Blue didn't learn. There was no machine learning there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the, that's a key point, right? But go ahead. Yeah, it yeah. is a key point. Um, so it was not a genetic algorithm. Just think about chess and think about the board. If, if you're not a chess player, basically it starts out in a certain way and you have a few options for your, for your first move. And then from there, the complexity of the game kind of branches out. So if you move a certain way, then your opponent has a certain set of other um, uh, reproaches they can make and so on. So Deep Blue was taught this tree. Basically, it's like a, a map of chess. And um, according to Claude Shannon, there are about 10 to the 120th uh, different 
games of chess that can be played, and that's called Claude Shannon's number. It's a huge number. Um, the number of possible go boards is it exceeds that by a great deal. It's more like Claude Shannon's number to the 120th. So that's the reason why people thought we would never beat Go is because the way that Deep Blue won was essentially analyzing enough of that map to become dangerous to a chess player um, who plays like a human and uses intuition and maybe some cultural things. Um, I, I'm not a chess player, but those that I've spoken to, they they seem to kind of they treat it kind of like kung fu, like they have moves and, and opening, you know, they have strategies and, and you know, uh, words that describe generic ways of playing. But Deep Blue didn't have any of that. It just knew that, okay, this move was made. Now I go down this road in my map for the game of chess, and I see that this road will lead to a decision here. Okay, so if I become, if I get to that decision, I got to make you know, one of these decisions that will probably allow me to win. And then um, the probability just got higher and higher as Kasparov made his moves because no human can see as far as Deep Blue could. So Deep Blue won because it was just fast enough to process the mountain of data that is all the chess games in the universe. Which uh, Gary Kasparov or, or any human can't do that fast, right? So Nowhere near. But, but as you said in your presentation, um, speed, computing speed, will only get you so far. Right. So some of the biggest problems are kind of uh, – biggest is sometimes defined in terms of their complexity. So like their a computational problem, say, might take um, two to the – 15th steps to do. So 32,000 roughly steps to complete some task. So if you do, you know, one of those steps per second, okay, now you can start to assess how long it will take the computer to do something. But if you look at say two to the 64th steps, so 15 to 64, that is a pretty big jump, but I I feel like humans are kind of comfortable with thinking of numbers like 15 and 64 as being close, sort of. Now let's just go to 20, 2 to the 20th. So that number of computations, if you did one per microsecond, wouldn't be completed in centuries. So if you hand a computer a, a problem that has 2 to the 10th or so uh, steps to complete to do a certain task, and then the task gets bigger, and you hand it one that's 2 to the 20th, it may no longer be able to solve that problem. So um, computing speed seems to be at the crux of it, but... Um, since you have what uh, mathematicians call a combinatorial explosion, meaning there's like this threshold between being doable in a human's or the universe's lifetime um, and not, uh, you, you, you might be able to, to solve more problems if you had a computer that's fast enough. But let's say computing speed doubles three more times, then we would not be able to solve, we still wouldn't be able to solve a problem that would be Let's see. So 2 to the 15th, 2 to the 16th. So that's double. So 2 to the 17th, there's another doubling. 2 to the 18th, there's another doubling. Uh, Two more doublings, sorry. Um, I'm not very good at arithmetic, by the way. But quickly, you... um, uh, the, the so you can go from 15 to 18 very quickly, but that's going to take, um, depending on computer scientists and engineers, years to make a computer fast enough to do that. So um, uh, 
generically, I hear computer scientists throw around numbers like two to the 15th as being the maximum size of a sample space that you can expect an, a very naive algorithm to look through. So if you have to do this in what's called a, what they like to call a brute force way, where you just consider every possibility, two to the 15th is the extent of it. So if you get a little bit bigger, say two to the 16th, well, that's too big to expect the computer to, to finish its job. So, you know, if it took 15 minutes to do 32,000 calculations, it will take 30 to do um, 64,000 calculations. And now when you go up to the two to the 17th, you're looking at um, 124, roughly thousand calculations. So now your computer will take twice as long as before. So the, as the complexity doubles very easily, hard problems are usually a two to the something type of order of complexity, then you need computers that are twice as fast, not just a little bit faster, but twice as fast, and then four times as fast, or two to the 15th times as fast as what we've got. So if you go, you know, to the it, do a thought experiment and uh, imagine computers who could do, do that even faster, um, would there be limitations on speed itself? In other words, can computing speed solve all those problems? No, uh, I, I think the, that's a definitive answer um, based on how we're engineering and designing computers. Uh, it will take a completely different computing paradigm to to solve some of these large problems. And, um, you know, there are things that are tied to cancer research, like protein folding. Um, uh, that, that, so I'm told, is a very complicated process to look at. And um, the... Uh, so maybe during break, I could crunch some numbers here and, uh, and say things a little more intelligently about the, the thresholds between uh, what we can and can't do realistically with, with computers. But um, physicists and computer engineers are certain that we can only go so fast in a computer because it has a lot to do with the size of things. And, you know, electrons apparently have some sort of size. And so we can't, we can't make our components you know, much smaller than we already are. But um, speed is kind of dependent on how small we make these components. You know, I mean, it literally kind of boils down to how close some things are in, in your machine. Um, so the closer you get them, the faster they get. Um, but there are people that like to cite, well, quantum computing might be a reality. Um, and I I am told that that, in fact, is a reality that mathematicians are bracing themselves for. So we're trying to figure out the mathematics behind that and, you know, design uh, good computer algorithms to solve those problems. But quantum computing seems to be suited to only a certain kind of problem, mm-hmm. like the, the company lines for, for how great quantum computing is usually involve a couple of interesting examples where a quantum computer can solve a problem with one of those high degrees of complexity very quickly. Um, and trivially, but it doesn't, we haven't figured out how to use those tactics on all of our problems. Mm. Let's do take a break. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk about um, this impulse and maybe it comes, uh, of course, it's chicken and egg. I was going to say maybe it comes from science fiction, but science fiction comes from somewhere, right? It comes from an impulse in, in the writers of science fiction, but this impulse to go beyond your, um, your washing machine which is a robot, you're saying, right? A very yeah. efficient robot. But we, we seem to have this fascination, this curiosity to, uh, to, to construct robots that look like us and walk like us and they're kind of like us. And I guess it may be a, a little leap there to maybe imagine, well, maybe a robot could develop consciousness. 
like like us. Let's hold that for after the break. Uh, more with uh, David Brown. He's a professor of mathematics at Utah State University, and we're talking about artificial intelligence. His uh, Science and Rap talk from 2016 is titled Artificial Intelligence Too Late to Stop the Robot Apocalypse. We'll uh, continue answering that question following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Extermination, serving cash value for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. If you've ever had a child, you'll know that parenting advice can get pretty emotional. Well, actually, if you do that, there's a very good chance your baby will die, and only someone who hates their baby would do that. Wouldn't it be nice to bring some data into these conversations? I really started digging into, like, okay, well, actually, what should we do here? The Data-Driven Guide to Sane Parenting. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. UPR is everywhere you are. With classical music programming, news and information, statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new UPR app, UPR is only a push of the button away. On the next Radio Lab. A young child ripped from the arms of the only parents she's ever known. Turned over to the Native American biological father she has never met. A custody battle over a little girl. You're like, whoa, how can this possibly be okay? That threatens the future of hundreds of Native nations. His child being given up for adoption without his knowledge. There goes Indian law. There were literally communities where there were no children. That's on the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is USU professor David Brown. He is in the Mathematics and Statistics Department at Utah State University. And uh, we're jumping off from his very interesting Science Unwrap talk. That's a series from College of Science. Uh, it's titled Artificial Intelligence, Too Late to Stop the Robot Apocalypse. And uh, Professor Brown comes down on the, on the side of you, you. You don't think there's going to be a robot apocalypse. Uh, very unlikely. You know, uh, on 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 some days, I, I kind of like to imagine, uh, you know, the, the the quad being stormed by robots, uh, but um, yeah, no, that that's just a fantasy. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could take them, basically. Yeah. Okay. And uh, if good. if uh, you might have seen the the talk, I, yeah. I show some videos that uh, um, demonstrated. Well, turned to be the limitations of the robots that that um, are made by the specialists in the world. Um, I, I think there's some fantastic machines made by Boston Dynamics that can actually get around fairly well. Um, but when you put them into a generic situation, um, if they get around well and negotiate rooms and do things like shake your hand or something or even kick a soccer ball, some of these uh, robots can do, that's about all the computing power that they have space to move around. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're going to need uh, quite a bit of um, machinery to do enough calculations to do much more other th- much more than than that. So, no, I, I robot the robot apocalypse is not like we see in science fiction. I, I if it's happening, first of all, it's sometimes I think it is happening. I think it's happening in a, in a way that's very insidious, and that is just we're going to find one day we have surrendered ourselves to um, a robot that basically could be summarized as all of our technology. You know, we're going to get to a point where only a few specialists are able to help us through some of the problems that we have 
um, with our computing devices or our technology that make our makes our life easier. Um, and then even even then we'll have such a massive body of technology that there will be no there will be no single specialist that can that can fix every problem. I mean this this happens with any kind of science or discipline, you know, um, um, the time where there were mathematicians that knew all of mathematics is long gone. And, you know, some people like to say, and this is mainly a testimony to, to David Hilbert's ability, is that David Hilbert might be the last mathematician that knew all of mathematics to some extent. Um, but like I said, that might be just a testimony to his, his, um, his level of competency in the field, not... Um, not any statement about, you know, mathematics in general, but in anything where humans kind of put their minds to it collectively, uh, it becomes pretty big, pretty fast. So, mm -hmm. so we're, we're good at creating cultures that, you know, transcend us and kind of start to run our lives. And, and I think, uh, I like it if we realize that, that technology is doing that mm -hmm. and every, every step we take towards distancing ourselves from, Oh, you know, whatever it is that we, we can do, whatever it is that we can fix, whatever it is that we can cook um, by ourselves, uh, you know, we're, we're surrendering some control. So if, if the robot apocalypse is a loss of control to, to machines, then uh, I, I think we're, we're doing it. But And you say you, have, you still have a flip phone? I do have a flip phone. You yes. have a flip phone. And, and you mentioned that's maybe some worries that you've just articulated, but also maybe attraction. You mentioned attraction. You may be too attracted. Right. I can relate to that. <laughs> but you, you, that, that is one of the reasons you'd, you'd have a flip phone. You don't want to be captivated yeah. by the screen it, all day. It is, it is uh, dangerous. I, I, I wouldn't want to be, um, I wouldn't want to be at work at all times. And, you know, to me, a great extent of work is being reachable by email. So now with a flip phone, um, I'm always reachable by email if I, if I have that flip phone with me. And it seems that uh, people assume that you have a flip phone now. And uh, just as an editorial comment, I kind of find that irritating because now I have colleagues that might send me an email at, uh, you know, 10.30 p.m. saying that they expect something by, you know, on their desk first thing in the morning. Well, that's what the assumption that I looked at my email at 10.30 p.m. And of course, why wouldn't I? Because I have my flip phone right next to me, which is my alarm, which is my everything. You know, I watch it right before I go to bed or, you know, I read a Kindle book on it right before I go to sleep. So yeah, why wouldn't I know that someone sent me an email at 10.30 p.m.? So I'm kind of, you know, protesting. I'm sort of swimming against the current, and I realize that I'm going to lose that battle uh, generally. But personally, it, it's, it does me a favor because, um, you know, without that, I can, I can step away from work, basically. So if, if I need to disconnect and focus, which is kind of what a mathematician or academic in general should do uh, as often as possible, then, then I can't do that with my flip phone right next to me or any technology whatsoever, basically. Mm -hmm. So... So now you have just articulated the argument that um, the danger that you, that you fear, much more likely than robot apocalypse, is that we just more and more kind of naturally, because of convenience, seed dependence to, to technology. Uh, but I want to go back to, you know, this kind of the sphere that comes from science fiction. It has been articulated by some heavy hitters, you know, Bill Gates and... And, uh, and Elon Musk, um, this idea of at some point, perhaps, if not robots, then, then uh, how like, uh, you know, computer 
uh, could could achieve consciousness. I think that's what we that's the fear, right? Consciousness. And then, and, but are we imputing human qualities that are never going to be um, uh, present in machines? So I, I think um, uh, I, I think there are entire branches of philosophy that are devoted to answering the question: What is consciousness? So um, I, if it is a, I think it's a good science fiction axiom to to use the very nebulous term consciousness and pretend that we know what that means, and then just say that okay, Skynet or whatever has uh, you know attained consciousness, and it for whatever reason has decided that humans are worthless. So because um, I guess machines are inherently bad. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where the fascination is, but it, it's definitely, you know, like all art, it's a reflection of humanity. So maybe we just kind of like to say over and over that uh, we are, uh, we're dark. We, we like to look at train wrecks and car accidents, and we kind of believe that everyone is out to get us or that, you know, there's some kind of a, uh, a bad bone in everyone else's body, but uh, I, I don't exactly know how we made the leap to computers other than just for yucks. It makes a good story. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I love watching a sci-fi where we fight the freaking robots, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's the, the few and far between sci-fis where you, you know, you actually get to feel for the robots, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and if they are conscious, why, why wouldn't we, uh, you know, like to care about them? You know? Yeah. By the way, you have a you <laughs> uh, you you show a, vi- a video or at least a, a photo in your presentation of a, of a guy with a I don't know it's a stick and he's pushing over a, a robot. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't know what that experience. <laughs> you're saying based on if we feel like at some point robots are going to gain consciousness, that, that robot might remember that. And right. He's going to come back and get us. Yeah, that was that was a uh, a little uh, you know kind of a joke there, hoping that the audience would take on the conceit that yeah we should be afraid of this robot apocalypse. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, imagine if that robot, which by the way, you know every every cubic inch of its of its design is devoted to getting around like the like it did. So you know doing anything beyond that is is pretty much impossible for it. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, it seems like we might. Um, might be treating certain machines poorly. I, I know that, uh, you know, every once in a while I do uh, some percussive maintenance on my uh, desktop computer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I worry that someday it's going to, you know, hold yeah. that against me. And it'll be very easy. It just it just could decide not to print for me yeah, for a day go. or two. There you go. So. <laughs> and that would drive you crazy. Yeah. I, I have, I admit to uh, performing percussive maintenance on And sometimes it works. <laughs> sometimes it works. Um, so... It, Back to some of those funny videos, and this is current state. I think of, of these robots that walk around. You know, uh, there's there's a robot who's I guess who was driving a car, but then could not successfully get out of the car. Fell out of the you know, right. walking upstairs, fall down. Uh, and this is funny, but I I think in our imagination, we going back to computing speed and and being able to go through all those permutations, you know, billions of times per whatever, you know, uh, many more than we could. Uh, this this old idea that, um, you know, monkeys uh, pounding on a typewriter eventually going to produce Hamlet, right? That I, I guess that's part of our imagination, that, that somehow that computing speed and that power is going to produce something human-like at some point. Right. 
I, I, I that that could be it, but I, I feel like that might be a uh, simultaneously a, a very insightful thing to think and maybe naive at the same time. So insightful because I, I don't know that everyone thinks like this, that, um, you know, so monkeys pounding on a typewriter and they produce Hamlet. Uh, I guess you could say statistically that's possible, you know, given that Hamlet is a sequence of keystrokes and the some monkey might do that. Um, but I, probability and statistics are kind of difficult for people to uh, wrap their minds around. And so I, I don't know if that's where it's coming from. Like, it's conceivable that these computers, once they get put together, just happen to have the right <clears throat> connections, or maybe we add one more program to this machine and suddenly it's conscious. Um, that's where some of the, some good sci-fi has come from, I think, where you have a, um, one of my, uh, favorite authors, Robert Heinlein wrote a a novel called, uh, the moon is a harsh mistress. So, uh, um, you're welcome, Robert Heinlein. I know he's, he's passed, but, uh, yeah, you know, his estate, go out and read that, read that book if you haven't. Um, uh, the moon has a massive network of computers that control everything on it from, you know, air conditioning to plumbing. And um, more and more, they have to add computers to this to this network, and more processors and more processors. And suddenly, the computer became conscious in the fact that, in the sense that it could have conversations with another human. Uh, now, this computer didn't take over the moon; it actually helped um, a couple of uh, uh, rebels rebel against the the current uh, uh, government on the moon. And it was very easy with the help of that that computer. Um, but there was a big war, and something happened. Maybe some component of it was jostled or blown up or something and its consciousness was lost. So after the war, the machine was gone. Anyway, I, I think that's, that's as possible as it is possible to have a monkey create uh, a Hamlet or, or, you know, yeah, I guess a given a monkey and have that monkey bash on a keyboard. Um, it's probably just as likely for that to happen. Yeah. Let's take another break. Uh, come back with the final segment with David Brown. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about, uh, in in your presentation, you talked about the Luddites, the actual Luddites, right? We throw around that term so much nowadays. I think it's useful to actually remember the Luddites. And the, this gets us back to our relationship with, with technology. And then I want to talk about uh, risk and benefits of, of technology. That's probably where the discussion should be, right? Rather than imagining um, HAL or some other, you know, uh, computer or or robot developing consciousness being good or evil you're saying that's very unlikely but but uh we're, we are living with technology technology is going to get better and better or more and more and so let's talk about that to risks and benefits when we come back we're talking with david brown he is a professor of mathematics at utah state university uh his uh, talk a couple of years ago in the science and rap series is what we're talking about here artificial intelligence too late to stop the robot apocalypse more following this break programming on utah public radio is made possible in part by our members and the cash grand fondo bike ride highlighting cash valley and finishing in north logan at the same location as a tour of Utah on July 13th. Details on registration available at cashgrandfondo.com. 
My name is Lee Austin, and I worked here for many years as program director, and now happily retired and living and listening to UPR mostly in Wayne County at 94.5 FM. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time on Utah Public Radio. If you love listening to live music, then join Utah Public Radio on June 16th for the first installment of the UPR Summer Concert Series. It'll be an evening of art, food, and live music from Sundown Swing and Mama Longlegs, all performed outside at the beautiful vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. Come and enjoy the summer evening with the UPR crew, and if you'll be celebrating Father's Day on June 16th, then just bring your dad with you to the concert. For more details and to get your tickets, go to upr.org. And thank you. It's among the most well-known, serious works of classical music, but I can't help it. When I hear this opening theme, I think of the old Monty Python skit where a magician plays the concerto while escaping from a burlap bag. We'll reminisce about that with the Piano Concerto No. 1 by Tchaikovsky on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is David Brown, Professor of Mathematics and Statistics at Utah State University. And uh, we're jumping off from his Science Unwrapped uh, talk at Utah State University. It's from the College of Science titled Artificial Intelligence. Too late to stop the robot uh, apocalypse. And uh, so let's get into talking about Luddites and uh, technology and risks and benefits. But uh, first we have this email from uh, Steve. Uh, Steve says the New York Times op-ed page is running an occasional op-ed pieces uh, from the future, contemplating technological and philosophical issues which humanity may well may face someday. Yesterday's piece was headlined, Should You Add a Microchip to Your Brain? The headline gives you the gist, but you, you don't need to read the whole piece. Your guest doesn't worry about an AI takeover of the world, but does he have thoughts about the eventual merging of mankind and technology? There are futurists who believe it is likely that in the long run, consciousness will be vested in vessels more durable than the perishable human body. Science fiction writer Charles Strauss, Nobel laureate economist Paul Krugman, is a fan and friend of Strauss, is one of these. Well, what do you think? I would love to be a robot, first of all. If, if I could get in line and do that, yeah, I'm, I'm totally happy with a metal body. Um, uh, I, I have quite a bit of metal in me as it is right now. Uh, I've got some, uh, some fantastic metal hips and a metal shoulder, and I think they work great. Um, I, I'm fairly certain they'll last much longer than bones would. As for a computer chip in my brain, um, I wonder if it's just kind of another side of a philosophical coin where, you know, we take uh, antidepressants or, or psychotropic medication, and um, how is that different from a computer chip in our brain? Um, you know, uh, antidepressants can, um, are very likely to do quite the opposite of what you want them to do, which is, you know, cause their takers to do harmful things to themselves or others. Uh, and why would we worry about a similar thing with a computer chip? Seems to be maybe more direct. Mm-hmm. This idea of consciousness, that boils it down to, you know, this is philosophy, this is a religion, this is, you know, but uh, the essence of what is human and uh, there is something attractive about, you know, can we boil that down or individual human, me, what makes me me, and uh, put me in a you know, metal casing that could last a lot longer. But that's a long way from 
you know, computers, right? That's a long way from, <laughs> that's a big leap. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, given that we don't, we can't even define consciousness, um, uh, I don't even, I don't think we're looking for, we, we don't have that as a goal. You can't call that a goal. So um, if, if consciousness is a goal, it has to be, you know, we're looking at it randomly, basically. So, you know, right now, um, all, all science is like a flashlight on the darkness of the universe. And that, that flashlight casts its light in a certain section. And that section is, unfortunately, all the things that we can define, basically. Um, and then the more and more we define, maybe the more and more the light kind of spreads. So given that we cannot define consciousness or what is even human, whatever that means, how would we spot consciousness if we, we saw it? Um, by the way, there, uh, Alan Turing is, is, is a name, uh, po- probably one of the fathers of computer science. Um, he, uh, is, he's got a Turing test that uh, um, supposedly is a way to, to detect whether you've got a, a consciousness in your computer or not. But um, Marvin Minsky, who happened to die just before my Science and Rap talk in 2016, Marvin Minsky was another one of the mothers of uh, computer science uh, thought by many. Marvin Minsky operated with, I guess, the null hypothesis that we're nothing but meat computers. And um, he he was a master of messing with robots that were nothing more than arms that moved blocks around. And he operated with the premise that if I layer enough programs on top of one another and make those programs interact with each other in certain ways, my computer, my robot arm will exhibit creativity. It will build things that I'd never told it to do. So he basically had a theory of mind that was uh, humans are nothing. Human consciousness is basically a bunch of programs layered one on top of another, all kinds of interactions with them, all networked together in a way that's extremely complicated. And when it, when it comes down to it, we can't do anything that's outside of our code. So what's a program? It kind of comes back to it. And, you know, if a computer chip in our brain is going to help us out, why not? You know, what's, what's a drug versus a computer chip? So, um, yeah, I, I don't, um, I, since we don't know what consciousness is, I don't think we can say that it is a goal of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Steve, for that email. Very, very interesting. Uh, so Luddites. We've made reference to this, and it seems like every every time you talk about technology and the dangers to technology, you we say the word Luddite, right? Um, so uh, tell me about, remind me who the actual Luddites were, and then I want to jump off from that. So, yeah, so they were, basically they were people that, that feared a certain kind of technology at the time, and uh, I believe... Um, the technology at that time was a sawmill. If not, it was the, the spinning jenny. And they were concerned that these sawmills or spinning jennies, which are, you know, sewing machines, were going to take all of their jobs and then, you know, they would have no use in the world and so on. Um, so, you know, I, I brought those into the, the talk because it kind of shows that one way or another, uh, human beings have had this this strange fear of our technology taking us over. And so it's kind of for that reason that, that I call myself a Luddite, um, not that I'm a technophobe or whatever. I, like I said, I, I love technology. I use it all the time. I, I, whenever I can get a computer to do something I want via an algorithm or just turning the freaking thing on and watching a DVD, I'm quite happy about it. 
but I am I am a little bit hesitant or fearful about what our technology will do to us. And if it begins, you know, the question is, does it start to shape our lives in a way that we never wanted? And um, when when I think about people complaining about robots taking our jobs, um, which there there are many. Um, I think you have to, I think we have to remind ourselves that when the robots take those jobs, they were jobs that we shouldn't have been working in the first place. Like, you know, if we can find another way to, to cut big chunks of wood without risking our limbs, we should do it. If, uh, if there's a way to mass produce clothing without a bunch of people sitting in a sweatshop all day long, we should do it. If there's a way to box things with, you know, essentially robots, uh, we should use that instead of hiring people, you know, at, at, so many dollars per hour to, to waste their entire life in a factory. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of like the definition of oppression when I think about it. Mm. So every, every, every technology has been used to take away a job. Humans have recovered somehow, you know, the, the, this technology typically opens up new avenues of, of, you know, work paradigms, you know, with every, with every technology, there's gotta be a technician for it. There's gotta be a designer. There's gotta be someone that maintains it, for example. So, um, I think, um, oh, and by the way, the data suggests that, you know, at the Industrial Revolution, the uh, amount of unemployment and jobs has, has decreased. It has not increased. So every advent of a new technology does not, in the long run, result in a loss of jobs or a loss of money or, or an increase in, in poverty. We just have a couple of minutes left. Um, maybe a good place to end it. And you, during the break, you uh, said that you, you don't think... Artificial intelligence is a term that's, I don't know, useful. We shouldn't be use it. What what should we, tell me about that? What and what should we use? Well, I, I think um, I don't know the term. Uh, uh, in my uh, science and rap talk, I, I recall carpeting the whiteboard behind me with a bunch of um, terms that some people use, like assistive intelligence uh, or you know intelligent computing our computer science department here at Utah State they have what students call an artificial intelligence class uh, but they call it intelligent systems so I think we need to think more along these lines is that these are artificial intelligence is um, uh, it helps us it is it is assistive computing you know maybe maybe even beneficent computing might be a better term for it but um, if artificial intelligence is a discipline, which I think is very difficult to say that because an artificial intelligence scientist should be paying attention to everything from engineering to physics to neurophysics to psychology. Um, in fact, you know, studying what people call artificial intelligence has influenced the way that I teach because if you're going to aim for consciousness, you got to speculate on how it works, and then you go for that in the computer. So to the extent that artificial intelligence is trying to mimic consciousness, it's making good models or which lead to good discoveries about how our own brains might work. You know, which are mysterious in and of themselves. They certainly are. Certainly are. Uh, well, we reached the end of our uh, discussion here. Uh, David Brown is professor in mathematics and statistics at Utah State University. Uh, his talk from 2016 in the Science Unwrapped series from College of Science was titled uh, Artificial Intelligence Too Late to Stop the Robot Apocalypse. 
hopefully we've at least in part answered that question on the program uh, t today. Um, a very interesting discussion. You can go and find that talk. Uh, just Google uh, science, USU Science and Rap, David Brown. There's a great TED Talk in the TEDx USU series. David Brown, Google that up, talking about uh, mathematics. Uh, David Brown, uh, thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Culligan Water of Logan, serving Cache Valley for almost 70 years, providing Culligan bottled water, whole home systems, soft and conditioned water. You could give your people Culligan Water. Details at CulliganLogan.com. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll follow the influence of jazz from its homeland in the USA to unexpected locations like New Zealand and Slovenia and travel back to its roots in Africa. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Jazz Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I was laying there and I had these two babies on either side of me on a mountain in the middle of nowhere overlooking the ocean and I heard something outside and I thought to myself, my God, what am I going to do? Join us for stories of angst, jitters, panic and fear itself. That's next time on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.